Hello, I'm Grayson Brulton, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. Before this episode begins, please kindly take a moment to subscribe and be notified when a new episode is released. SAE Tomorrow Today is published every Thursday. Keep up with the twists, turns, and acceleration in the mobility industry between episodes with the awesome SAE Smart Brief. On today's episode, I sat down with Wiley R. McCoy and Roger S. Miners to discuss how their experience in racing led to a future in production. The book release of McLaren the Engine Company and the rich history behind it. And away we go. Enjoy this episode. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Hey, Grayson. How are you? Doing well. There's a lot of really great stories that you gentlemen have, and I'm super excited for um, you to share those stories with our audience. And to kick off the podcast, Roger, I'd like to know, why did you write McLaren, the Engine Company book? I I worked at McLaren, and uh, I realized that nobody really knew much about McLaren engines. Everybody knew about McLaren, but uh, I think only the the real... uh, aficionados were deep enough into everything to, to notice that there was this thing called McLaren engines. But I, I don't think people gave that much credence. That was maybe just a, another way of saying McLaren or something like that. And um, and being there, I, I said, uh, you know, I'm, this is a lot more than just an engine company. And uh, so when we did the 40th anniversary uh, in 2009, is that right, Wiley? Yeah, yeah. 2009. Yeah. Um, we talked about doing a book, but there was not enough time. So we tabled that. And uh, a few years later, uh, maybe seven or eight years later, they the subject came up again as a as a way to promote uh, the heritage that was now part of a new company that acquired McLaren, uh, a Canadian company much bigger than McLaren, and so they uh, they wanted to uh, wanted people to know more about McLaren engines because it was part of their company, so. We embarked on this project. I'm happy you wrote the book. I learned a lot reading the book. I had no idea of some of the most iconic vehicles you'd engine work on, and we're going to get into that a little bit later, and the engines for the armored cars and all these incredible innovations that the company did. And so I'm really happy that you shined a light on that because I learned a lot reading your book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. And Wiley, what did you first think? So you have this experience. You're the CEO of the company. You know Roger. He approaches you. Okay, Wiley, let's write a book about this. What did you think? Unfortunately for me, I'm, I'm always pretty practical. So it was all about the trademark and the name McLaren and separating us from McLaren International, which we were separated from about 1982 when uh, Teddy Mayer sold that company. So we claim we were the original McLaren and the, the guys in England were the new McLaren which didn't go over very well. So uh, in that process, uh, when Linamar purchased us in 2003, uh, by the time Roger came with this idea, let's do this book, uh, Linamar was interested also from a standpoint of making sure the world understands 
that this McLaren is part of Linamar and it's also a separate McLaren from McLaren International. So it was easy to say, yeah, let's do this. And plus we had a lot of old guys that wanted us to record their history before they were gone. It was that simple. It's it's simple, but you you did a lot of good for the automotive industry, and I learned this. I didn't realize McLaren Engines was the second company to bear the uh, McLaren name, and today there's several companies that bear the name. For our listeners who might not understand the different McLaren companies and what they do, could you please kindly shed some light on why McLaren Engines was founded and what the focus of the company is? Well, Roger can explain from the standpoint of George Boltoff in the start like you did in the book, right, Roger? You can give a little of that. McLaren, at, at, during the Can-Am years, starting in 1966, at first in 66, they were buying engines, uh, principally from uh, Traco Engine um, Company in California. Traco Engineering, it was called. And they were they were about the best builders of uh, um, American uh, racing engines, and uh, that was in '66. And then uh, McLaren hired this guy G Gary Newton to um, to come and work for them. And um, he, he's more than just an engine builder; he's an engineer and. Uh, has always been at the top level. I mean, right out of college, he was at the top, top level because he took a job with Chaparral Cars and was their, their engine development guy. And uh, then in uh, the late 60s, he went to England to work for, for McLaren. And, uh, but still, they depended on outside suppliers to help them with engine dynos and uh, uh, machining and things like that at the direction of Newton and McLaren. And uh, then in, um, in 1969, McLaren decided to bring that function in-house and they hired a guy out of Traco named George Boltoff, and he went to England and, and built engines there. But he, he realized that this was, uh, they were wasting a lot of time shipping engines back and forth. Sometimes he had to go to the United States to meet with suppliers and so forth. And he suggested to Bruce that they open a company in America so they wouldn't have to do all this traveling. Well, Boltoff was from California, and, and Bruce McLaren, in the back of his mind, must have been saying, oh, he wants to go back to California. And he asked him, well, where should we put this company? And Boltoff said, in Detroit, because that puts us right next door to Chevrolet Engineering, and we're using Chevrolet engines. So it made sense. They decided to put together a company, and it was uh, Bruce, a man named Teddy Mayer, who was Bruce's um, partner, famous guy, 
And then a not-so-famous guy named Bill Smith, who'd been working with McLaren since the inception of the company. He was working out of America. He, he was a Ford dealer. He supplied um, parts, logistics. He, uh, they, they housed themselves at the beginning of the season at his Ford dealership um, and so on. In so, New York. In New York, yes. And yeah. uh, so when they decided to found this thing, Smith was involved because he was a good friend of Teddy's. And uh, Smith became the the um, controlling, he bought the controlling interest in the company. He contributed to get that. And uh, so he, he was the guy behind the scenes. And uh, so it was formed just to make things run smoother and uh, and be able to do a better job of supplying engines. But, but it also was the headquarters in America of the McLaren racing team. They housed the cars there, the, the technicians, the team members. So it was really the American headquarters for the British company, McLaren, Bruce McLaren Motor Racing. And they had started the Indianapolis program. Which, yes, that. Which also required you to be in the U.S. Part of George Boltoff's decision was you know, Detroit isn't that far from Indianapolis either. And Wiley, you started your career as a race mechanic. Was the, having the racing team base there, was that one of the attractions to you? So you have this experience with racing and here's the McLaren racing team. Is that how you got in there? Or was that the inspiration path? Not really inspiration. It was just when you're, when you're working as a mechanic, engineer, whatever you're doing in racing, and you're putting food on the table, you're just always looking for a job. So when I, when I finished uh, my last assignment, uh, racing programs end, and we're always, uh, we're nomads, basically, back, especially back in those days, in the 60s and 70s. <clears throat> and the McLaren, I was near McLaren. I was in Adrian, Michigan, working for a gentleman, working with a gentleman named Doug Shearson managing uh, Bobby Rahal's Formula Atlantic stuff. And uh, we knew about McLaren, was just up the road in Livonia. And uh, the opportunity came up and I interviewed and Gary Knudsen hired me. So was just looking for a job. Well, you might have considered yourself a nomad and looking for a job. You're a gentleman who is highly respected in the industry and a lot of individuals look up to. And there was one individual, Indy, winning driver Bobby Rawl, who was quoted in the book as saying the following, he's one of those guys that you want to keep around because he's forgotten more than you'll ever learn. That's powerful. How does that make you feel? Uh, it was very kind of uh, Bobby, Mr. Ray Hall, uh, to say that. But when I came into his uh, world, I was uh, a professional mechanic that was putting food on the table and paying the rent by working. And that has a different attitude than uh, than the hobby racers like SCCA racers were back in those days. His dad was one of those and brought him up in that in that SCCA road racing world. And uh, <clears throat> we found each other in Chicago because I was there running a race car shop that uh, I had left the South. I worked for Holman Moody's where I really learned my trade and uh, learned how to put food on the table by racing. 
So when he found me, I was I was definitely something different than what he was used to. Uh, the mechanics were his buddies were helping him, and uh, guys that worked at car dealerships and that sort of people would, weren't professional racers. Uh, so when he ran into me. He, he ran into a sort of wall of a person that wouldn't deal with any kind of crap and. Uh, and the only way to do things would do it right. And <laughs> Bobby was, and his dad were very intelligent and understood, even though they were a little bit put off by my attitude sometimes uh, about being, being, being grumpy. I was accused of being grumpy, <laughs> but it was, it was basically that I had to, it's the way I was going to feed myself. So I couldn't, <laughs> so I passed that on and, and of course Bobby absorbed it all and Look what he became. I mean, he became teen owner and won Indianapolis. I mean, he he went racing and definitely put food on his table as a racer. So it was very kind of him to say that. But it's more about just making a living. If you look at potential, and there's one project in, in particular, Roger, I'd love to get your opinion on, that somebody that never lived up to their potential because of a, an incident was John DeLorean with the DeLorean sports car where McLaren worked on the performance. The car became iconic thanks to Back to the Future. Roger, I'd love to ask you, during your research, what would have become if DeLorean didn't have the issues that he did because the car with the movies and there could have been a new model and McLaren was there um, optimizing the performance? What would it have become if it wasn't for those issues? Well, the problem with uh, DeLorean is we really didn't, uh, we did some work for him, but it never appeared in the car. So the car, as it was and always will be remembered, has nothing of McLaren in it. And however, in my own opinion, the car uh, wasn't that good. Uh, and I don't think, I, I suspect that... Um, what happened would happen that uh, people weren't buying them, I guess, and they ran out of money, and uh, that was that. Well, they ran out of the Queen's money. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, our job our job for DeLorean was one of our first commercial vehicle, and we were hired by a company in Long Island called Legend Industries. And uh, uh, Legend took on the job of increasing the performance of the DeLorean with, and they came to us for our turbocharging expertise. So we turbocharged that Peugeot Renault V6 that was in it and produced a pretty hot car, but it, like Roger said, it never went into production. They ran out of money. So basically our job was what we did for the rest of McLaren engineering. Once McLaren became an engineering company and stopped racing, uh, when when our race teams left and went back to England, uh, we became a facility that uh, did validation for high performance programs, so they could go into production and deal with a thing called warranty, which is a big item that most racers don't understand. So we had to learn about warranty, and we were taught that by our customers whether it was uh, DeLorean or Peugeot or Chevrolet or whoever it was. 
So uh, that's what we became good at. And DeLorean was the, the DeLorean project was the start of that. Did you ever build a prototype? Did it end up in a collector's collection? Did it end up in a museum? Was there ever a prototype with your modifications anywhere built that's somewhere around the world today? There were there were several prototypes and because when they went bankrupt they owed us a bunch of money uh we disposed of all that mr smith who's a very practical person said you guys got to get out of debt because you let those guys get away with owing you a bunch of money and they bankrupted colin chapman died and the whole process changed and i don't know what happened to the equipment after we unloaded it so never tracked it it's just it's one of those iconic things that you would think would be worth a fortune today. And you talk about tuning engines and adding performance. And one of the vehicles that came up for auction that in McLaren tune was a 2006 ASC Diamondback Viper. The Viper caught the public's imagination and you took it to a whole different level of performance. Could you you talk about that, please? The, the Diamondback was a show car. It was a... Uh, it was used to kind of blend the McLaren uh, look, I'll call it. Uh, if you look at the cover of Roger's book, those iconic trumpets, uh, fuel injection systems on the Can-Am cars, that's what the Viper guys wanted. Something that looked like that but totally wasn't practical. Uh, we only built one. Uh, what we did for Viper was we validated their, their engines and their product. We had a long, uh, a long life with Viper, and after Linamar purchased us, it was one of the great uh, collaborations we did because Linamar took over the manufacturing of Viper engine parts. They made the cylinder heads and the blocks. We did the development, the testing and validation. That's what we really did for Viper. The Diamondback thing was just a showpiece. It might have been a showpiece, but it got incredible publicity. I'd love to ask you both this, but we'll, we'll start with you, Roger. What was, you, you talked a lot about the technical breakthroughs in your book, but could you highlight some of those technical breakthroughs that McLaren Engines was able to achieve? I think uh, initially uh, turbocharging, and uh, thanks to Wiley, he's the guy that started all that with a BMW 320 turbo race car that was a, a joint McLaren engines McLaren project. Uh, it's because um, BMW wanted to get into Formula One and uh, BMW management said no. So they said, okay, we won't do Formula One. We'll do a turbocharged four-cylinder sedan. <laughs> But the engine could be a Formula One engine, but uh, and and that was sort of a behind-the-scenes uh, idea that m might never happen. But we spent three years, and Wiley can give you all the details because he ran that program, and uh, he, he ran the engine development program, uh, and uh, that was his first. Uh, role at McLaren was to do that project. Um, so uh, we had, I, I don't know 
maybe Wiley can expand on this. I don't know of uh, uh, a breakthrough uh, more than we had some expertise in the company that was uh, really a pretty exclusive. The the, the real uh, the real uh, innovation that we brought to automotive was was when you brought in something like turbocharging that's that's one of the reasons that the legend industries people hired us to do the delorean and they all we also did a fiat for them but if you remember the little fiat sedan uh, we turbocharged that because we were so-called turbocharger expert when when i came to work at mclaren to start the bmw program roger's talking about i didn't know bean shit about turbos <laughs> but but I, I I did know how to manage an engine program, and Gary Knudsen understood turbochargers from the Offenhausers that they had, which was the real beginning of turbo and racing was the office, and uh, and that was mostly to an old gentleman in Indianapolis named Herb Porter, who convinced Air Research to help him develop a turbo Offy, so. Everything was going to have to be turbocharged by then. We also turbocharged the DFV Formula One engine into what became the DFX Indy motor. So we had an expertise in that. We were able to take that that racing uh, attitude of you got to get things done. The the race is next week. You can't slow the process down. You can't let it get bogged down in, in lots of uh, data analysis. You have to get it done. We took That was the innovation we brought to niche market programs we did. They all became turbo programs. So the Buick GNX, the Pontiac Turbo, uh, Oldsmobile's Quad 4 Turbo that, we, that never went in production. We did various programs with turbochargers to bring them to a production level where they could be produced properly could deal with that problem called warranty and that was the innovation that we brought it was it was like roger said it wasn't any great magic thing we created it was it, it was that work habit and the the uh, discipline it took that you learn racing to production programs that's what we did that's what gave the mclaren company the leg up on everybody else in developing production programs. Part of our relationship with customers during our racing years, uh, that subject arose that the thing had to live and it had to and you had to do the job on time and uh, and it had to be perfect. I mean racing requires perfection or else you drop out of the race. So that attracted the OEM manufacturers to McLaren because we were doing racing projects for them. And that's what uh, made the transition from being a race shop to being a, a uh, OEM supplier of engineering services because we had that discipline and we also knew the process. And uh, it was it was a win-win uh proposition for both companies uh, the 
McLaren and its customer. So, and so we we talk in the book about the racing years and then show the transition to being a production-based engineering services company. You've done a lot of really great stuff, Wiley, and I, I know the answer is probably no, but I, I have to ask because I'm still trying to track one down. Did you ever do a turbocharged Fiat Jolly? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> the Jolly, uh, on, on, Onassis had it. It was a little jolly that you would take around in Greece, a little, oh, no. little two seater no, no. with the wooden seat. No, no, <laughs> no, <good> seats. <laughs> no, no. We did. We our product was uh, was I forget what they called it, the two thousand uh, Roadster that was in the U.S. at nineteen eighty eighty one time frame when Fiat was here actually selling cars uh, before they left and then they came back. So that's all we did for Fiat, and once again we did it to a another company called legend industries is legend industries a wholly owned subsidiary of mclaren engines or is that a partnership oh no it was nothing it was a a customer it was our customer legend industries did the deal with fiat and delorean and then turned around and hired us to do the work legend industries had uh various uh people that are pretty well known in the automotive industry bob lee who was chief engineer of Chrysler until he retired last year. Bob Lee was part of Legend Industries. Uh, it was a pretty healthy group. Uh, Lou, it was how we met Lou Infante, who was one of our guys that did uh, uh, helped us do many projects. He, he was with Legend Industries. The Legend Industries group were mostly made up of ex-Chrysler guys. If you remember, Chrysler collapsed about 1979-80. And those, a lot of those guys were let go and they formed Legend Industries to take on projects, but they didn't have the, they didn't have the structure or the dynos, the test capability that we had. So they hired us to do all their, all their boots on the ground work. So you mentioned niche industries and the turbocharging expertise. Is that how Agara Hess and Eisenhart? got you involved with armored vehicles since you need that torque to get out of a situation with a hostile actor and you need, and these vehicles, as you know, are a lot heavier than your tradition vehicles. Is that the expertise that got you into that niche? Uh, no, uh, it was Roger's expertise in, in selling. <laughs> <laughs> I have to hear this, Roger. We, 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 actually, we actually didn't turbocharge those. We just put the biggest Chevrolet engines we could into a Cadillac, which is a 454 cubic, 502 cubic inch Chevy big block. In, in limousines. Oh, yeah. That was our expertise, but we got to work because Roger sold it. Roger, how'd you sell it? I got to know. I think that was uh, Herb, Herb Fischel helped you with that or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I went to uh, Chevrolet and said, what do you got? <laughs> we, we need work. And so they gave us some programs to do and a couple of racing programs. One was a... Uh, a their Korean um, what was that Korean car? Uh, Geo. Uh, Geo Geo Storm. We did a racing engine for the Geo Storm, and we also did some work for the Chevrolet uh, uh, endurance racing project. It was an all Corvette uh, series of races, uh, uh, but they also introduced us to. Uh, 
to uh, O'Gara. Yeah. And uh, we went down there. Wiley and I went down there and told them what we could do. And they said, okay, we're going to send you some limousines. And we need, they're going to weigh 11,000 pounds. And we need, they needed a few things. The, the vehicle had had to be able to survive an attack for 15 seconds, which would be enough time for the driver to accelerate down the street and turn a corner just to get out of the line of fire. So uh, they had to be pretty heavy because they had to take machine gun fire, and I don't think they could take a bazooka hit but the but they they could drive over a bomb and have it go off and not uh destroy the car uh it might bounce up into the air a little bit but uh they they were the original imraps yeah so so we created uh, for... so we had, we actually and again I defer to Wiley we we put these limousine bodies on truck chassis and uh put 500 cubic inch uh, Chevy engines, and they had to have real good cooling capability. I mean, because uh, they're out in the desert. So it, it was a long-term project, I think. It's a few years. Yeah, we did Cadillacs and uh, Chevy, uh, big Chevy sedans. We did Suburbans. Uh, they all got the same basic powertrain, transmission, differential brakes we had to do all that do either of you gentlemen get to take one of these out on a test track in america to see what it was like to drive i used to drive them i used to drive them up and down m5 because <laughs> we, had, we we had to prove that they do 120 miles an hour so i'd take them out and prove that they do 120 miles an hour so what is it like driving an armored car 120 miles an hour well we had to make it so it felt fine that was part of our job we had to make it handle so they just wow. fell feel like you're driving a bank vault <laughs> wow so you, you take that into account wally you've had this incredible career that's a great moment what are some of your fondest memories from your career uh all my my real memories are people there there's so many good people that have made McLaren engines work that all my memories are tied up in them. And there's many. We had some real, real, real whizzes come through the company. That, uh, you know, starting, I mean, Gary Knudsen was, uh, uh, you know, as far as being mentors to me, Gary Knudsen, Tyler Alexander, uh, Bill Smith uh, were definitely mentors and then from there on we brought people in that worked for a certain period of time were really good and escaped us in one way or another and then, and then we sold the company to Linamar uh, basically we we had the same basic type of company at the time we sold it to Linamar Linamar purchased us because of our people and the the capabilities we had for product development so it's most of my memories are tied up in people um there was that race that road america 500 
that that <laughs> you managed? <laughs> oh, the BMW. Yeah, that was a that was a fun memory. I got uh, the the old Hobbs the the original BMW program with a little 320 uh, sedan, which call we call the flying brick. Uh, uh, Roger Bailey was the team manager. He'd been in and out of McLaren a couple of times. Roger was always in trouble with immigration somehow or another. And uh, Teddy and Not Smith for anything had, he did wrong. Not no, for anything he did wrong. Paperwork. No. His paperwork. <laughs> he, he was lax about his paperwork. So, but he, he came back. They, they got him new papers and he came back to run the BMW program as team manager. I was the engine development chief. Uh, but they had... Uh, Tyler was running the, all the IndyCar programs, Johnny Rutherford, and uh, in 1979, uh, if you remember, Indy used to race at a place called a big track in Ontario, California, and uh, they had uh, a customer named the Whittington Brothers that wanted to race McLaren at uh, Ontario to get themselves into the indie world and they wanted to rent a car from Tyler and they had a bag full of paper bag full of cash which you know where the paper bags of money came from back in those days so uh, uh, Tyler said well yeah I, I'll take that and get you a car and he's he looked around for oh I gotta have somebody come manage the car at Indy at Ontario so he took Roger away from us and made him go to Ontario and run that car. We had uh, the uh, Road America 500 race coming up, which is a big IMSA race. So I had to be team manager. Uh, Ed Nathman was our crew chief at that time and he and I ran the car and we won the race. And uh, Roger was pretty pissed because that was one, <laughs> one of our big, big wins and he missed it, Roger, Roger Bailey. So yeah, that was that was a fun memory. You have these great memories, and you you. I'm really happy that you talked about people and and culture is one of your fondest memories because that's a direct reflection on your leadership. Because you led the company, you created the culture, and based on what you've described on this podcast and what I've read in the book, you've done incredible things for the automotive industry. And the automotive industry, I'll say very bluntly, owes you a debt of gratitude. Uh, for for what you've done? No, no. Wait a minute. the The automotive <laughs> industry paid my mortgage and put food on my table. <laughs> I'm still happy with that. Okay, <laughs> that's a All wonderful right. thing. All right. And as we as we look to the future, all signs are pointing to a future with electric vehicles. Roger, what are your thoughts on that future? Well, I think it has a uh, a good future. Um, President Biden just uh, announced, or, or I think it was Senator Schumer just announced that they would try to get legislation through that would ban uh, uh, internal bust and combustion uh, engines, and all cars would have to be be made as electric vehicles. Uh, going forward, now that has <clears throat> that had, that can be implemented. That's a that's a good sign for the electric vehicle 
industry, um, they, uh, the incentives that come from the government, and also the existing banning of, of uh, uh, fossil fuel engines, uh, like uh, California is talking about uh, 2035. Some countries in Europe are at 2030. So there's an up, a complete <laughs> upheaval based on government regulation and incentives that makes these electric vehicles uh, a thing of the future, if not already. I mean, we've seen Tesla stock skyrocket in the last few months because people are realizing that this is what's going to happen in the future. So just for those reasons, now Wiley will have other reasons uh, in addition. Well, I have a, I have a, I have a pretty practical reason, which is uh, still to pay my mortgage and put food <laughs> on the table and, and, and keep Linamar happy. Uh, Linamar, uh, when I retired 12 years ago, uh, the new boss that took over McLaren said, uh, you don't, I don't want you to leave yet. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And he said, what do you think? And I said, I think I better go look into electric drives and electric vehicles for you guys, even though I'm a gasoline breathing internal combustion engine guy, I bet we better go find out about electric vehicles. And he said, okay, go do that. So, in the process of that, that's what I've been doing the last 12 years, is is uh, developing the electric vehicle strategy for Linamar. Now there's a whole team of 100 engineers doing it, and we've got business with Volkswagen and uh, Daimler and all kinds of, you know, OEMs, passenger cars. Uh, we're heavily into to a commercial vehicle world. Uh, because they're the most practical guys that can use it right now because of the battery problem of having to charge batteries and deal with the cost of batteries. Uh, so it's 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 going to change. Everything's going to change to that. I, I'm a little more uh, reluctant to say that you can legislate internal combustion engines out of existence, uh, but that's a political thing that I'm not going to touch with a 10-foot pole. So... But electric vehicles are coming, and eventually they're going to replace the internal combustion engine, and only old farts with old cars will be driving them, and they'll be struggling to find out where am I going to get my next gallon of gasoline from. But I, I hope that's 50, 60 years from now, and I'll be long gone by then, and I won't have to deal with it. <laughs> And that's a great way to wrap up this insightful conversation. Wiley, and we'll start with you. And What would you like our listeners to take away with them about McLaren engines? Well, basically the, the fact that you can uh, merge racing attitude to the world into the production world. And, and the one thing that, that I realized way back was that we had to bring along bring along people so I've been part of my SAE world has been heavily involved with STEM and I love the whole process of getting kids all the way from grammar school junior high to high school 
and get them into the technical world, use racing as a way to get them excited and then show them that they can, they can do real world work and still be an enthusiast for an automobile. So that's what I want people to come away with for whatever McLaren has done in the past. Roger, your thoughts? Well, I, I wanted people to know about McLaren engines. Uh, having come onto the scene and realized that this company did a lot of, lot of very important things and nobody knew about it. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody saw the tremendous success with the Can-Am cars uh, for five years, winning the championship and just dominating. They knew all about that. They didn't really so much know that in the light, later years, 1970 and 71 and into 72, those cars were based right here in the United States in Livonia, Michigan, wherever that is. And uh, they did, they were the headquarters of McLaren in America. And uh, I, th I think it, it gives me pleasure to have people say, oh, I didn't know that. So that's kind of the kind of the question I wanted to answer. Yeah. This is this has been fantastic and for our listeners who've enjoyed this conversation and like to learn more, you may purchase McLaren the Engine Company book on SAE.org. It's a wonderful read. It was really well done. Roger Wiley, thank you for your contributions to the book and to the automotive industry here. And as we've heard, McLaren Engines is engineering the future. And Wiley, Roger, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedules to come on the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast to share these incredibly awesome, awesome stories and, and insights from your career. So, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much for uh, letting us tell the story. All right, Grayson, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Tune in next week to hear from Andreas Wendel, Vice President of Engineering at Kodiak Robotics, as he discusses the technology behind self-driving trucks. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn to stay connected and continue the conversation. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.